Nerd Appropriate presents exclusive coverage of the Bioware Base, recorded live at PAX Prime 2013. All right. Welcome to the Rated NA Podcast for the website nerdappropriate.com. As you'll notice, this is not a numbered uh, podcast. We're doing a whole special series for you. Yeah, we're going to be bringing you a total of 12 different podcasts recorded live at the Bioware base this year's PAX Prime. So make sure to click subscribe and enjoy. And as you can see from my name placard, and I'm the community manager for Bioware Edmonton fan- in Montreal. Sorry, that's a very fancy word for this piece name of placard? For this cardboard. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt. Moving so on. Moving on, as Mel be. Fleming yeah. would say. Okay. <laughs> Moving on, Cam. Thank you. And we are here to talk about the future of gaming. Yeah. Chris Bain is here. <laughs> Who he is? I'm going to let the panelists introduce themselves, starting with Mel Fleming. Hi, I'm not Chris Bain. (laughs) Chris Bain, do you want to be on the panel? Yeah, you should. Come on up. Chris Bain. Chris Bain, everyone. And as a special guest, Chris Bain's hangover. (laughs) I knew we'd get someone for the audience. There you go. Uh, I'm Mike Laidlaw, also not Chris Bain. I'm the creative director for Dragon Age, and therefore I'm probably supposed to be thinking about the future more than I'm capable of doing right now. <laughs> oh, crap. I never actually introduced myself. No, nah, it's cool. You said your name. No, well, that, Jessica I, said her name. <laughs> I'm a localization project manager. Go, Mark, go. Uh, I'm Mark Darren. I'm the executive producer for Dragon Age. I have in previous uh, incarnations been Chris Bain several times. <laughs> also been a Bain Chris. It was a little weird. Um, Probably awesome. awesome. Yeah, 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 kind of awesome. As Chris Bain, you have trouble regulating your own body temperature. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'm Cameron Lee, producer of Dragon Age, um, and I guess I want to be Chris Bain. (laughs) Hugs. I'm Jacques Lebrun, uh, technical director for uh, Dragon Age, and uh, I hope to be reincarnated as Chris Bain. (laughs) (laughs) This is mental. Oh, I'm Sebastian. Welcome the, to Monday, everybody. Yeah. I'm the yeah. I'm the lead combat designer for uh, for Dragon Age. Uh, I have no Chris Bain related joke. But you're sitting next to Chris Bain. I am sitting next to Chris Bain. That was fun. Yeah. Thank you. I'm Chris Bain. Hey. <laughs> I work in BizDev at the studio, supporting these wonderful human beings who decided to torment me today. We can turn anyone into a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Quickly, just ask a question. Yeah. <laughs> so, on a previous panel, Matt Goldman talked about how the future of gaming was 3D printing. <laughs> I would like to know is the future of gaming some kind of crazy gimmick like 3D printing, where you make an immersive experience and bring it? from the virtual to the actual? Or do you think that 
the future future of gaming. <laughs> Do you think that the future of gaming continues to be making great games? <laughs> yes. That's, that's le- objection leading the witness on that one. Making making great games never goes away. So uh, our goal is to make shit games one. now yeah. for the future. But you can yes. print them. But you can print exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I do think I do think we're seeing a trend towards um, gaming expanding as a medium in terms of, of uh, action that you take and uh, its physicality in the world. So I don't think it's a gimmick. I don't think 3D printed fish that you then 3D print uh, oven to 3D print your cooking um, is actually going to be the kind. Like I, I think gimmicks fail. Gimmicks fail inherently because gimmicks, by their very nature, are not designed. Um, with you know, with users in mind, they're designed to kind of catch your imagination, and they often fall flat. Or but, if they succeed, they're no longer a gimmick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. By, by nature, they stop that's, being a gimmick. That's it's the trick, because because you know that gimmick of color on television <laughs> I know. was never going to catch on. <laughs> I wanted um, black or blacks. That's all I wanted. Yes. Yeah. So it's hard to tell what uh, what is a gimmick and isn't a gimmick. Um, I mean, sometimes it's it's pretty obvious. Um, I've been to a lot of. I guess I guess it's kind of stopped in the in the late '90s. There was a lot of companies trying to introduce um, smell. I knew you were going there to yeah. to gaming. Um, we looked at it for BG2 and realized how disgusting the uh, cult of the unseeing eye was going to be. Yeah. It's, it's oh, pretty, it's it's a sewer. But oh, these yeah. days, like like Nug smell, that'd be pretty cool. I bet Nug smell great though. They, they probably smell Nug like, smell like butterscotch cheese. cookies. Mm. Butterscotch cookies and lavender. Just mooples. Just mooples. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> Liliana's nug? No? I think we ran out of that one. That yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of gimmicks. <laughs> I, you see too many of them fail. So yeah. I, I personally think the future of gaming is still going to be wicked games that you guys actually want to play. Um, and then if there's interesting things that will come along, I'm thinking maybe 10 years from now. Um, if there's interesting things that come along, I think it'll be an, a slight enhancement to the experience. There's Oculus Rift and stuff like that as well, which is an interesting mm-hmm. route. I think that's got more chance of success I, than yeah, some I, I think that's starting... I mean, five years ago, I never would have said it because I mean, you were seeing three televisions falling flat yep. on their faces. But the Oculus Rift might become a legitimate uh, platform. It's certainly showing some good early promise. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the strength of the Rift is what we're seeing right now is we're seeing actual games that are good in first person and in that level of immersion. Because I think that the danger with any type of tech like that is like people immediately go, how are you going to put your heavily menu-driven RPG on there? And we go, we're not. We're not because, oh, my God. Boop, 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 boop. I don't want to do that, right? It's it's just menus flying at you. Um, you know, we we're, we're, that doesn't mean Bioware would never do it, but in terms of Inquisition, it's not the right game for a Rift, right? It's inherently third person. So who am I, the invisible cameraman huffing and puffing behind everybody? <laughs> well, that's that's anachronistic and therefore yeah. not allowed. So Romance, romance yeah. scenes would be very interesting. <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think when you when you look at the different interfaces over the last uh, few years, you see, you know, Connect was the first one kind of out. And there's always that journey as games get made of how is the interface going to fit with that play pattern, and sometimes it you know sometimes it doesn't work. So there, I think there's going to be more failures um, than successes, but that's normal. When you look at Oculus, you look at the different interfaces. So it will evolve. It's just what play pattern will evolve, what type of game will make the most sense playing it, because there are some interesting you know types of games that you could see coming out for it. It's just you know there's going to be a lot of people trying to fit round things into square holes for a while. I'm so glad we 
have Chris on the Yeah, someone who yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I know. To, to, to go to Jess's initial question, though, like, you know, games being more physical, I think that um, I, I don't know necessarily that games necessarily need a physical component, like a thing you touch or, or whatever, 3D printed, as it were. But um, definitely we're seeing a trend towards them coming with you that sense of, of mm-hmm. persistence and permanence, uh, whether it be, well, I mean, partly what we're doing with the keep is like, cool, I, even at work, I can be adjusting what my DA world's going to be. Yeah. Um, a lot of games, you know, uh, uh, a lot of the multiplayer shooters are now letting you use a phone app or a website to adjust your loadout so that when you get home, you dive right into the game and, oh, cool, now I'm, I'm spec medic and I'm carrying this assault rifle and, and so on and so on. So it's letting you kind of take part of that experience with you, and that's, that's really cool. Um, you also get a lot... A lot more push. I think. I think a lot of the you see this a lot in the MTX guys. Um, but th- I think there's actually some really interesting things to be done with time as a game mechanic. Uh, now that we, you know, with more cloud-based stuff, more um, shared experiences, time where like, oh, this is going to take a day. Uh, you know, it, right now it seems living purely in free-to-play as a means for you to well spend money to speed it up. But other games, I think, have a, a huge potential to to be aware of of that kind of fourth-dimensional gameplay element and something that that you know is worth exploring weren't you paying the eve subscription just to keep your research going oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. your 30-day research tasks Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah. well you're not going to learn marauders 5 just by farting around man you have to get in there you 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 mentioned a word cloud cloud computing i think that's um not necessarily the persistent online stuff but cloud computing power and what that can do to gaming that's really interesting. So there might be some things that can happen in the future about that. But it's really hard when looking at the future of gaming. I think people can really only uh, look five years out. It's too hard to go beyond that because you, you have no um, context about what's going to occur. So you don't you can't recognise the opportunities out there that you could, could possibly use. So without peeking too far behind the curtain, um, how can software, hardware, and uh, business entrepreneurials work together to push the future of gaming Scratch forward. Scratch and sniff screens. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Xbox, PC, uh, Sony, people like EA, Bioware, and then um, Chris Bain. <laughs> As his own super entity. Just Chris Bain. All by himself. There's EA, there's Sony, there's Microsoft, and there's Chris Bain. And there's Chris Bain. Um, allow me to start. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think what, uh, if the industry does a good job, you'll see a lot more freedom for uh, experimentation, especially using interfaces and, uh, and, and combining what you, you know, cloud computing with your, with your local gaming. And uh, right now the, the industry is, there seems to be that mentality of let's invest a ton right up front without knowing all the answers, mm-hmm. and failures are treated very harshly. There's a lot of studios mm-hmm. that when they try stuff, it doesn't work out. It, it impacts people's jobs, you know? And so I think if, if we can get to that point where, um, you know, the, the consumers out there and the fans are more willing to try more experimental stuff and the studios themselves get a little softer about, um, you know, the failure on it, we, you know... You gotta. We'll, we'll break some eggs, and then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have some really interesting new, new gameplay patterns in the future. Yeah, I think. I mean, when you look at, I'll call it camera-based entertainment. So, everything from YouTube, television, um, movies. If you sort of group that into a big, put that under a single umbrella, and then compare that to gaming, um, 
there are a lot more things happening in that space from a, from a monetization perspective, from a delivery perspective. Um, you've got everything from I go to the theater and have an, an, an experience to I go on to the internet and spend five minutes uh, watching something on something on YouTube for free uh, that's driven by a little ad in the corner. So there's different monetization models, there's different delivery models. I think that's really where the future in the, in the sort of medium term, the gaming industry needs to really embrace that, is looking for different ways to monetize. Doesn't mean that existing monetization methods go away. It means that it broadens the, the, the hobby, it broadens the experience, because, I mean, movies, pretty much as a general rule, Hollywood movies always make money. They don't necessarily make money in the theater, but by the time everything happens, by the time they go international box office and then DVD and then they sell their syndication rights, they get a lot of opportunities to try to recoup their costs. Um, we get basically one. We get one shot right yep. now, mm -hmm. um, um, and I don't know that there is a way for us to be like that. Mm -hmm. But we need to be looking into that space. Mm. It's well, an interesting topic about monetization, and, and um, the future of gaming has to still be financially successful, which means that you guys have to want to be engaged in it. So recognizing what those monetization options are is going to be really important. So. Well, and I think if, if we start to look at the trends we're seeing right now, uh, there's a number of those that, that – and here's the thing. When you say monetization, it sounds like this evil, dirty thing. Yeah. Um, people need to eat. Yeah, it sounds so. like it sounds like a, you know, a task-oriented you know, money extraction device, like some sort of you know, pneumatic tube you hook to your wallet, um, which, is, which is always horrible. But like if we look at – so say, say the life cycle a game can go through right now, and it's funny because the big studios were not really agile enough to quite have, have figured this out yet. But you see it in the small ones. Um, you know, Kickstarter being a huge, huge thing. And essentially what Kickstarter is about, I think, is finding your really core audience, people, people who are so excited by your premise that they will give you money to help you realize a vision, right? That's, that's impressive. You've got Greenlight, which is, again, saying, yes, we, this is a game that exists and we want to see it on Steam. You've now got those early alpha access games, like I've been playing Prison Architect recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not done, and they're really open about that, but I was able to throw money at them in order to get access to the game, to, to have a chance to have developer feedback. Um, right there, again, you're finding your core, you're finding your really, really key people, and, and you're getting money to help finance it without having to necessarily go to traditional publisher, which is awfully impressive. <coughs> now, the, the, something like Inquisition, that's not going to work on, on Greenlight, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a big game, it's a new engine, it's got all kinds of fancy hoo-ha, and that's good. That's good. It's good that we have this wide range. But between something like, you know, GOG resurrecting all these old game styles, which in turn I think actually helps revitalize the industry because suddenly people come along and go, God, I did love Theme Park Tycoon. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and why aren't there more of those? And then a, a friggin', you know, Kickstarter shows up and you're like, oh, yeah, I want more of those. So, so it's, it's interesting how that's happening. And I think it's almost like we've hit some sort of awesome critical mass where there's enough impassioned gamers and there's enough distribution channels, like, you know, look at Xbox saying, yeah, good, you'll be able to self-publish um, with the one that's coming very soon. Uh, uh, obviously, Steam has been, been driving a big driving force on this. Um, and just, heck, with websites, right? I mean, I remember buying Kentucky Route Zero directly from their website because I could, right? And I'm like, cool, then there's no, there's no cut off the top for you guys. I'm in. Then give me a Steam key. Awesome. Now it's convenient. Like, so we're seeing more and more exploration on that space in the smaller games. And... Um, uh, as a result, I've been on an indie rampage recently. So you're always um, on an indie rampage. Yeah. It's you yeah. too. Yeah, it's well when you're me, you can't be a hipster any other way. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got the beard. 
Yeah. Anyway, so what I'm saying is is that the distribution channels, I think, are catching up to the point where um, you can find a core audience and fund a smaller game kind of on the core and, and not have to, to compromise it um, in any way without resorting to, like, you know, tricksy monetization. It's more just about how to, how to turn it into income, how to reach your audience, and how to find your channel. So, um, you know, I, I'm hoping the future of gaming is this incredibly diverse um, spectrum where it's like it, – you know, good. I've got ten thousand people, but they are super willing to play this space game. So let's do this. Yeah. I'd like to point out that Mike was not a hipster before cool. Yeah. No, no, no. It wasn't even close. I'll give you some skinny jeans. <laughs> oh Jesus! Good God! Yeah, <laughs> you'll be good. Can you imagine that? Yeah. yeah. No. Just, just make sure they're. Oh, yeah. Just make sure they're tight enough. You can tell what religion I am. So I, re- I reckon. Oh, oh, oh yeah, that's nice. Now, yeah. There we go. Yeah. So this is going to devolve into absolute chaos. You started it, Cameron Lee. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I, just, I, re- I reckon we're going to see more. Uh, eventually, we'll see the industry open up into freedom of um, distribution. So both of you guys are talking about like lots of different channels, lots of different options. You know, you see uh, similar things have happened to other businesses, um, and the few that are just trying to just stay on to like grasp into that control over their delivery um, are the ones that aren't uh, that are struggling a little bit more. So I think eventually we're going to move there. Um, I don't know when it's going to happen, but eventually someone's going to have to go, you know what, you want to play this game, play it here, play it there, whatever. And also um, a little bit more freedom of choice as yeah, well. Like yeah, I always sure. think about uh, as our, our industry matures and grandpas are playing with their grandchildren and, and there's more acceptance that games are just like books or TV or are a medium for us to experience things, um, that we will have Kickstarters and opportunities for people to make, let's say, because I used to be a teacher, uh, educational things for people to buy or to use there's just going to be more diversity i think for that, that like the can, jane mcgonagall stuff maybe yeah maybe we don't have to be in school which yep. would have been awesome when i was thinking mm-hmm. <laughs> now so we're advocating no school i i'm we, not we advocating no school we have to have a meeting teacher, after the panel no and there's there would be a difference between no school and no learning so maybe we just broaden the classroom to include the whole world one thing I'm, i've been um, just just thinking about in the past little while is um I think, you know, we're at the point where, where games are, they're exploring different price points, right? So, again, yeah. Indies, right, there's some $10. You know, I've been playing Payday 2, and it's like, you know, 30 bucks I think. So, again, we, awesome. we're, we've got this broader price point base. And I think one of the things that, that's been preying on my mind, as someone who makes a big game, right, you know, mm-hmm. a big, big, huge game, is that it seems more and more like we're in competition for people's time than we yeah. are for their money, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, like distribution is very, very clean. There's so many potential distractions, you know, and you have every MMO in the world having all these, you know, daily quests and, you mm-hmm. know, constant new PvP drops and all this stuff where yeah. you're like, that. that's, I mean, even for me, if I'm playing an MMO, I am playing less other games. Right yeah, and I get yeah. home and I've made dinner and I put my toddler to bed. Then I got yeah. about one hour and I've got five <coughs> games that I could play that I really want to play. And which one do I choose? It's hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I think that's why you know sometimes we see we see people pushing for features and going, well, how come you know how come you aren't doing this? Because I really want to play your game, but that's a feature that's super important to me, mm-hmm. and I'm worried that spending that time without that feature will be will be a huge negative. So mm-hmm. um, I, I have no idea how we're going to deal with that. I think I think it'll balance itself out, but yeah. just the, the volume of games available compared to like when I was a kid where it was like, wow, it's a new month. There's something else out <laughs> on well, the Commodore 64. Well, that's the nice thing about diversity yeah. is that it, I'd rather have diversity and too many games to choose from and maybe not play a couple that would have been really brilliant life changers rather than not have enough. And I think that'll just drive the quality up even higher. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Uh, from a from a consumer standpoint, I know people are very 
driven by visual fidelity. And the question that always comes up is, what happens with that uncanny valley issue? So I think you're starting to see some games, I think, start to push their way through the other side um, a little bit with some of their character art. That's an immensely expensive and dangerous thing because I think the valley sits in a different place for every person. So when you look at something, you might think, oh, that looks amazing. And the person sitting next to you might think, oh, weird zombie person. <laughs> um, I think the Uncanny Valley moves as well. Because I remember yes, watching yeah. the original Lord of the Rings movie when I was a kid and actually being really creeped out by that movie simply because of the style that they chose for that. I found really creepy and uncomfortable because I wasn't used to that kind of cartoon animation style. And I think as we get used to the Avatars movies and the you know fidelity in games, People get used to it, and it starts to be okay a little more. And then, then you have the next leap, wherever that valley is. Mm. Yeah, and I think that you know what what gaming's proven right now is is you know we're at a point where the visual the visual kind of fidelity is high enough that you can you can very deftly sidestep the um, the uncanny valley because I think you know the thing that that you know even we recognize with Dragon Age is that um, people don't necessarily want to look at you know photorealistic people on their screens. They want to look at people that feel like they're grounded in the world in which you're presenting them, right? So this is why this is why everything Pixar does works so well. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at uh, Up and everybody is a shape. They're basically their head is a shape and they're walking <laughs> around and you know the old guys are square, right? And 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 the thing is um, there's a consistency across that in terms of the visual design that yeah. makes that makes your that makes you comfortable. You're at it's home like in this elevator space. music. It's kind of non-interruptive. It's non-interruptive <laughs> exactly. Um, or or even uh, you look at uh, um, you know the, what you can do with animation and expressiveness to to evoke the emotion that's very human and very real. Uh, you know something we've we've got a we've got a toddler. So Pokio, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's this awesome yeah, it's this awesome right, in the room. kids show. <laughs> it's it's it. narrated by Stephen Fry and it's about this little boy. But it's all done with like like their eyes are literally like at signs, and yet it is one of the most expressive and and mm-hmm. and convincing things, despite the fact they look like little plastic dolls. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean the the human brain has a a tremendous capacity to pull faces and figures and emotion out of you know line drawings right you 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 draw two circles and and a and a notch and half a half a circle and you've got a face and mm-hmm. it's instantly recognizable as a face mm-hmm. and you start adding eyebrows and you've got emotions right mm-hmm. and and so i think one of the things that's really interesting for me as as sort of the the, the photorealistic angle sort of pushes off in one direction um Seeing what people, you know, now that we have the technology, now that it's it's easier and easier to make games, what people are doing sort of on the other side of the curve mm-hmm. with using that technology to do, you know, really interesting vector stuff. I mean, again, like Pixar, you know, animation is is never going to go out of style, uh, mm-hmm. and and because you can tell a story with characters that that you can really get into and sound as well. Yeah, I think yeah, animation so. and sound are two yeah. fields yeah. that are under. I don't know what you say, not underappreciated, but under-celebrated because the better they do their job, the more invisible they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, I know, <laughs> your mom, I can't play The Last of Us because I watch, I watch this beginning and there is one sound at the beginning about 10 minutes in um, where a little girl just goes, <gasps> and I, I just put that down and mm-hmm. I don't think I can play that anymore. And if you've played the beginning, you'll know exactly which sound that is because it's, it's just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And so 
um, your audio departments and your animation your animation departments they just create that that connection to the story and to the, what the characters are going through and you make them that stuff makes you care about those characters which is important yeah the visual fidelity is a really interesting topic and we hear it a lot and we have to, to, to think about it a lot in mm-hmm. what we do but there's two things that trumpet in my mind mm-hmm. all the time one is fun right is it fun or not are you actually going to enjoy playing this thing or is it just because oh my god it's so real right that's not going to make one play the game and the other one is um i don't care if this box here is the highest fidelity box you've ever seen in your entire life but i do care that the whole frame of imagery around you um is immersive and 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 pulls you in and it's detailed and it feels like i want to be a part of this world that's far more important i think to to players uh, and to us than a five million poly box. It's like reading a novel. Like uh, I just uh, read Ocean at the End of the Lane mm-hmm. by Neil Gaiman, and it, and it is one of those books that y- I I came back. It was just this weekend. I came back and I had it an hour um, before dinner, and I was like, oh, I'm just gonna read this for five minutes and then have a nap. And I read the whole thing, and I didn't actually realize I'd read the whole thing until the last page. It was it just pulled me into that yeah. space so well. It's the same thing. I, I do think that's actually exactly what we're going to see is that level, that uh, immersion, the things that bring that. So consistency of world design, whether that be, you know, grass that moves when you walk through it or, mm-hmm. or um, just more motion in the frame, just mm-hmm. more of what you expect to see, whether it's stylized or realistic, just more um, a, a, con- a consistent experience where the characters aren't walking essentially on a soundstage where the the, uh, the set becomes something involved. It scrolls behind yeah. them like a Looney Tunes kind of... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at Minecraft. It's the, it's the yep. least yep. high-fidelity yep. experience you'll play this year, but, so but it is entirely yeah. consistent. Yeah. And, yeah, and then you look at the clock, and it's 3 a.m., and what happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's that the theory of flow, right? That essentially is if nothing is nothing is knocking you out of that space where you're in a you're in a game and you're thinking about a game and you're in the game and you're living the game and you, oh god, and that's I mean you know if you look at, at the amount of work like Firaxis as a shining example puts into making sure that that um, their UIs are very consistent, the information you need to effectively you know up, upgrade your civilization or send your XCOM soldiers out is all very clean and takes you from step to step and there's always there's always like two or three things just bubbling right it's like mm-hmm. pots just bubbling there waiting for you to oh that one's done cool but one more is a day away oh click right and that's that's <laughs> yeah. how they get you right and and that that the um the visuals i think as long as they aren't knocking you out of that immersive mm-hmm. state um it, they can be literally of any design i mean you, you look at something like um another good example of their minecraft is like the emotional journey to the moon takes you on it's this almost eight-bit old-school pixel art, but uh, you know, by the time you're done that, if, if you're not reaching for the whiskey bottle, you've you've done something wrong. So my last question before I open it up to audience: five thousand years in the future. <laughs> so after so after we've recovered from the monkey apocalypse, Liar to Sony excavating. Joy of my heart. She finds a copy of Dragon Age Inquisition, able to play it on whatever emulators happening at the time. <laughs> of course, gaming is still around because gaming, if any of you are archaeologically minded, has always been around in some form or another. What do 
future archaeologists think about Dragon Age Inquisition? Who <laughs> wants to take that one? What do the people in the future <laughs> think of Dragon Age Inquisition? <laughs> wow. Okay. Are, you, are you mad at us, Jessica? What's going on? You said well, this was the panel, Mark, because right, I told yeah. you to move on yesterday, right? Why did I come up? Yeah. Sorry, Chris Bain. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, so, I mean, ideally, for me, uh, you know, this is an archaeologist who at least has studied, you know, games of the time, is familiar with what's happening. And they're able to look at it and go, um, you know, they can they can compare it to kind of its peers and go, okay, cool. I see that this is this is kind of an evolution, not not like a revolution, because I don't. I think fundamentally the game we're trying to make is one that that um, captures a, a, a real hardcore RPG essence, right? You know, we were going back full TACAM and and um, you know having the, the party control and all those things that are that are kind of part of this legacy, and then looking at. Um, the visuals and the immersion behind it, right? So that, that my hope is that they can see that they would be able to put it in a context, right? It's it, its place in the metafiction, essentially, um, and that they understand that it's it's kind of us trying to to update a classic gaming style, you know, and not to do so in opposition to other games that are that are exploring that same top-down space or or what have you. Um, but they're tr that they're trying to do that, and then um, ideally that they. Uh, you know that there's an understanding that the story behind it, right? The story of the Inquisitor and the story of, of trying to uncover what's happening is, if if anything, um, a study of human nature, of of how um, humans, and, and I think I think we all to some degree suffer from this, are flawed. You know, in that in that sometimes we're 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 we lost in our own universe, and and you know we're all the hero of our own story. So we seize opportunities when perhaps the longer scale you know thing to do might be more altruistic, but more harmful to us in the short term. And I think that you know <laughs> whether it's security, whether it's you know global climate, whether it's you know there's so many things facing us right now, and we're so deluged with information that I think we might kind of be on the cusp of understanding that that you know being self-absorbed is not something that's sustainable hmm. and and that um if the dragon age um you know i guess franchise does anything is that it, it recognizes that humans have this weakness but that we don't all have to have this weakness so you can rise above and you can um you know kind of set aside the self uh and with the support of those around you right that's why that's why party and and um uh, friendship is such a huge part of the game uh, that that you can work together to affect some kind of change, right? And that it's a, that it's that while it's a dark world, it's ultimately a hopeful message. And I think I think those are kind of the elements that that we see as kind of integral to Dragon Age. And and whether it's a uh, uh, whether it's a dragon landing on your on your workers or a you know a, a sturdy door in a in a thing that the, all those conflicts are actually part of serving this larger thing that that teamwork, friendship, and altruism can can rise above you know a, a world that otherwise would be profoundly fucked. That's really pretty, Mike. Wow. Yeah, that was very serious. <laughs> I also think, I also think probably Thanks. Liara would be in love with Varric, <laughs> like she is with the Protheans because he's pretty lovable. I hope that they that they play it and then get very confused and think that uh, all the people that, that lived five thousand years ago had big horns like the playable canary, <laughs> and then, I know it starts a new fashion with like prosthetic horns. That's my goal. Shepherd, they yep. appear to have worshipped small rabbit things with human hands. Maybe they were their gods. 
I'm telling Ellie Hillis. Go ahead. <laughs> We're leaning. Really. I think one interesting thing, too, that you don't even have to go too far in the future is to see how far it's come along. And, you, you know, you see a four-year-old with, you know, with a tablet. They, they've never lived in a world where you couldn't press a button, ask for permission first, and get content. And, you know, you think back, well, you know, when we were kids, it's like, New game, you know, you'd be, you'd have to save up, you'd have to, you know, beg, you'd have to go to the store, and like it, it, it not really, not a form of punishment, but there was a lot of work that kind of went into it, and it's, you look back and you're like, wow, that was kind of hard, and um, just even one, you know, one generation later, it's a completely different experience when you think of the whole of acquiring games and playing them and going through it, and you know, Liara, I mean, she, she'd probably look at it and be like, how come this isn't in my head, like. Why, why do I have to use a controller? It is in her head because in it's synthesis, so it's five thousand years in the future. It's after it's after synthesis has happened. Can, can we can we maybe not go there right now? Because <laughs> <laughs> I already heard the warning sounds. Can you hear that? Well, I realized after I asked the question, I was like, shit. If anyone is in, if anyone's asking, I was like, oh no, twenty one eighty. Six or whatever. <laughs> I don't want someone to be like, fake it, girl. <laughs> wow. Um, I'll choke them out for you, Justin. My timeline was incorrect in the question, so. And none of us okay, caught it. Okay, so questions. No one caught let's it. Move on. <laughs> let's let's <laughs> go right, move on. Let's Ask take it questions. to the floor. But I no, Chris. This. Chris, you were right. Good answer. Oh, Good morning, man. ladies and gents. Uh, my question to you is actually an interactive storytelling. There are lots of really interesting mechanics and technologies that are used for implementing really interesting gameplay. So what either technological or gameplay mechanics have you encountered that you would like to see more of in the future or that you're sad or gone? Smell-o-vision. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, one, one thing that... Um, that I think that has uh, weird, it weirdly disappeared, though I think it's starting to make a comeback, is, um, uh, okay, okay, no, actually, take it back. It is starting to make a comeback, is uh, the procedurally generated content, which, yeah. which doesn't work, it doesn't work on a pure story, like, like this narrative is like, hi there, Jim, we're the blah, we'd like you to blah, like, it, at that point, you're like, oh, wow, I can see through that. I mean, the old freelancer, I don't know if anyone played freelancer, but that was how you got all your missions. We have an interest in this place. Okay, yes, thank you for your canned lines. Um, but, um, so, so looking at, like, so the, look at the huge resurgence of, of roguelikes, right? Like, it, it's like, I don't, it, half the people don't know what rogue is, but they sure know roguelike, which is great, Um it's it's procedural. It's 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 not repetitive. It's got lots of elements of randomness to it, and your success is in part determined by your ability to kind of observe the patterns over time. And I think that um, where there's a huge opportunity is to say, well, you know, could there be kind of a, a core story that's kind of advanced, kind of like more the privateer model to stick with my space flight sim nerdetry, um, where in privateer, you know, you were constantly being told like, well, you know, you're going to need to get a ship powerful enough to fly to, you know, the whatever nebula. And the game didn't care how you did that, right? It simply did that. Uh, it simply set that as an objective for you in a way you went. Um, you can see that same thing happening in the most recent XCOM, which, which had far more narrative than the original, but I think still kept the spirit of the original in that, you know, Dr. Valin would come along, you know, bitch at you for using explosives, but then say, so get me a, get me a prisoner. 
right? And as a player, you were like, cool, I'm going to go get a prisoner. How do I do that? And then you start looking at how you do that. And suddenly you're researching a new weapon. You're building a new facility for your base. You're likely building a reactor to power that facility. Then you're equipping a guy with the weapon, and then you're sending that guy out who's ballsy enough to get within three squares to capture one of the enemies. And you have to do all that quickly enough that you aren't fighting like the mutons by the time you manage to pull it off. So when you think about how many game systems are involved in that task and that you know the enemy positions and stuff are randomly generated, what you have is a narrative that's waiting for you to, to engage with its randomness to the point where you've then crested sort of a, a, a goal. And once you've done so, awesome, the narrative may now proceed, right? And that's, that, that's part of the things that, well... You know, I love the original XCOM having those beats where they're like, "We've discovered something." I'm like, "Ooh!" You know, like it was it was nice to have that extra bit of story as kind of my candy to draw me forward. So, I thought that was very powerful, and that that element of randomness is something that that um, I think we lost for a number of years, and and it's just started to come back in the past, say five, and it's really awesome for me to see it return. I I think an interesting piece of technology we may start to see in the next couple of years is. Um, Probably in in sort of the indie space is games that can recognize the player's emotion and react to that. Uh, I'm not sure that we'll see that a lot in the AAA space because I'm not sure that we want that to be the game. But I think you'll see games that are just about that. Like you know, you could imagine the the police detective sim where you are. It's entirely takes place inside of the inside of the interview room. And you play the role of either the police detective or the criminal, and then the game is re- essentially reacting to you because it's watching you, watching your reaction, basically trying to figure out if you are lying, the player. Um, so L.A. Noir with Connect, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I play that. Yeah, I, I actually that was my favorite part, L.A. Noir. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we may start to see that. I think that's an interesting piece of technology that it's probably right on the verge. Um, inter. Uh, uh, let's say people are hard, so everyone ke- always thinks that we're on the cusp of, of what was the what was Molyneux's dude uh, Milo, Milo 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 like we're always uh, um, we're always a year away from Milo, but I think we're going to be a, a year away from Milo for a lot of years yeah, now. Right. So I sure hope we stay a year away from Milo. <laughs> I think it was weirding me out. <laughs> Uh, I have a couple of questions, one related to Dragon Age development in general. I and think then, we um, should probably stick it to one question, right. so pick your favorite one question. <laughs> all right. Uh, for uh, Origins, you had the um, death magic in which you had a passive that react to the n- number of uh, dead people around you. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you guys feel about uh, the dynamic uh, toggles and stuff like that and just... Um, spells that you turn on and it doesn't just stop with turning it on and it continues to react to the environment. I think they're rad. I think they're rad too. Yeah. I mean, they had a, they had a timeliness and um, they had a degree of, of, you know, essentially anytime you say to the player, you know, um, thou shalt, thou shalt engage with forethought, right? You end up with a, with a, a really cool game dynamic because especially if there's a cost to those things. So in origins, they, they, you know, they ate part of your mana bar. Right or a stamina bar, if they maintained, then then suddenly you were making uh, 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 one of the Sid Meier-esque series of interesting choices you could make. Right? Well, will I do it or will I not? So those are always those are always very powerful in my mind. I love them. So um, recently, or not recently, maybe so much as uh, well, I, I think well, uh, 
casual gamers and the people who aren't so interested in hardcore fights and stuff have been getting more and more into gaming. And this, you know, sort of came around with mobile gaming and such, and Facebook games as well, but they have been branching out into less combat-focused games sometimes. And also, I know that Bioware has actually managed to be one of the main sort uh, of AAA attractors of these casual gamers because of your focus on story and characters. Um, and of course, this is this causes a lot of commu- of tension in the community because you sort of have two main uh, groups of people that that are really attracted to your games: the people who really want the old school RPG story driven narrative, and then the people who just want the story. They're just looking for a good story. And I'm wondering how you see this conflict uh, both uh, being handled in your current games, especially Dragon Age Origins, but also uh, Inquisition. I just woke up. I haven't had coffee yet. Uh, (laughs) Dragon Age Inquisitions, but also in the future, how you see this developing both for the casual gamers and also for your games. Ooh, I'll take this. So it's actually a lot more complicated than that. In a perfect world, when you started a game you would do a 15-minute psychological uh, uh, test, and we would use the results of that test to determine how you played the game, how you want to play the game. Because there's a, if, you look at a game like, if you look at a game like Dragon Age, there's a lot of things like, okay, do I want to, to play tactically? Do I, want to play, do I want to play the combat? And I want it to be hard, but I actually want to play in direct control of a single character. How much story do I want to see? How much choice do I want? Do I want incidental choice? Mm. Do I As want not that incidental choice? Yeah. yeah. Do I want the AI to, to solve that for me? Like, there's just a lot of things, all of which color and shape and 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 twist the game. Um, so what we ultimately will be trying to do is try to figure out how to allow you the control to play the game the way that you want to play it. If you want to play the game mostly for the story then we'll try to give you the tools to do that. Ultimately, the combat's not going to go away, but we'll try to give you the tools to do that. If you want to play the game more um, in more direct control of a single character, we'll try to give you the tools to do that. If you want to play the game like an old-school Dragon Age Origins, top-down, tactical, balls-hard, we want to give you the tools to do that as well. And the, the, the idea of a difficulty slider is a bit of... Um, it's it's sort of it's not that it's out out lived its usefulness, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not enough mm-hmm. complexity mm-hmm. in terms of, of what the actual problem set represents. Yeah. We need Ma- an experience matrix. Matrix. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mark's I think spot on. You know, it's uh, one of the premises that we have. You know, for Inquisition is that it's your game, as Mark said, right? So play it how you want to play it, um, and then it comes down to because we need to have as much depth in there to handle a full-on RPG, which is what we all want to make. Um, and so you, you can almost think about, about it like um, like a funnel sort of thing. So when people come in the top, you don't want to have barriers that are going to kick out the people who are interested in, in mostly story and things like that. Um, you know, you don't want combat to always look really just, oh, my God, how do I get through all these stats and what do I do? You know, So different people are going to enjoy it for different reasons. So we have to try and find a way where we don't put barriers in place, but we don't remove the depth of the funnel. Um, and I think through those different choices and tools that Mark's talking about, that's how you get that, because they can engage as much as they, or, as, or as little as they like with the different parts of it. So I, I think that's... And then the other thing with casual gamers and that sort of uprising is that 
um, casual gamers don't always just stay as casual gamers. Some, a, a lot of them do, but but often a lot also evolve into other sorts of gamers. I don't really um, like so the word that casual gamers. Yeah, neither do I, yeah. actually. Yeah, I, it's just a new, different game. You know, like, so you'll see them move around. So, Well, I think there's also a difference between, um, you know, like people playing on mobile games. And I think you look at um, games like uh, Telltale's game and, and Gone Home, where it, it's more about you know interactive storytelling and problem solving or adventuring, and there's you know little combat. Like there's no interactive combat at all, and so we're we're, we're keenly aware of what's going on in the market, and um, you know we love it when people um, you know experiment with new ways of of telling a story because everything's evolving, and it'll be interesting to see because you know. To, I don't know if you saw the mobile game up earlier. It's like it, you can't really do narrative that way, but it doesn't mean that you can't have a different way to tell a narrative. Mm-hmm. So it's um, you'll be interesting to see how it evolves over the next little while. Yeah, or or different difficulty within the narrative, like make persuades make make the ability to make persuades harder, um, or or puzzles harder. Like I I in my department I work with somebody who who doesn't enjoy combat. She is pretty sensitive about violence, and doesn't enjoy it. But uh, she's a pretty good problem solver and would rather up the slider on the um, Tower of Hanoi difficulty. Mm-hmm. That's how she, <laughs> that's how she sees Hanoi. herself. As, she <laughs> sees herself maybe as a casual violence or combat player, but she sees herself as a hardcore mastermind puzzle player. That's what she likes. Yeah, I think, I think you know, from a, from a fundamental, the, you know, the, ga- the game we make will be the game we make, right? And, and um you know, if if we end up at the point where we're, you know, part of our audience is like, look, I've just I've just had it with your with your fighting, right? Mm-hmm. You know, say that that's a pretty extreme example, but I hate your fighting, I don't want it. I think that at this point, <clears throat> you know, there, there's a point at which you have to say, well, you know, is this the right game for you, right? Because the the fighting is part of it, right? It is mm-hmm. it is part of the experience, and and um, you know, telling us that we should remove all the fighting and get rid of it forever because that's not the game I want is it, it seems increasingly um, self-absorbed in a world where there are lots and lots and lots of games mm-hmm. coming out and many, many more in development right now that have literally no fighting, right? Mm-hmm. So that's cool. But there is a there is a, a limit and a line. I mean, we already have countries with laws about different kinds. I mean, mm-hmm. France has very strict laws on child labor and, and Germany has very strict laws about violence and what you can do with, say, dead bodies or mm-hmm. decapitations in games. We just don't have them because we can't sell our game in that country if we have those in our game. So we have slightly different versions sometimes across the industry for whatever's in your game for those regions. Um, you're right. You don't want to go all the way down that rabbit hole. Well, the, but it is it is a consideration where yeah. there sometimes there's a history in a country or a history of of uh, um, something that a group of people doesn't really actually want to see. Yeah, and you're and, not going to get rid of fighting, and you're not going to get no, rid of not. your story as well. Yeah, yeah. well, the, the game yeah. the game essentially needs to have a locus point, right? Like yeah. a central point yeah. where the game exists, and we will give you lots of options around that point. But you know, if if it's if it's ultimately we are trying to make a game that is an RPG, right? Mm-hmm. There are stats, there are numbers, there is loot, there is equipment, there are monsters, yeah. there is stuff for you to fight, there are choices for you to make, right? And and if if you know, we, we can give you some degree of, of spread around that point, but if it's like, I don't want games with any choice in them, well, okay, cool. Um, I have some amazing recommendations. Yeah. Uh, but but essentially it's it's like, you know, there, there can be a point at which, you know, it is your game and you will be able to play it the way you want to, 
but that's always within a set of confines yeah, because if we try to pander to everybody, it, it turns into like this gray yeah. goop. You can choose from the stars in that constellation, but it's still in the southern hemisphere. Yeah, basically. yeah. Oh, wow. Nice. Thank you. Very poetic. I also had we put the fun in funnel ready, but I never used Ooh. it. Oh. Oh. I like that. Wow. Wow. Well, you buy one, Mel. You also put the null in funnel. Well, <laughs> now that Mel has in our question time with a pun, I wonder if there's anything that you guys would like to actually end our panel on. I kind of like we put the fun in funnel. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, the future of gaming ends on fun and funnel. <laughs> Come on, think of something pithy there, Mark. Mark, Mike? The one thing I don't feel we did is we didn't actually define the time frame for future, so mm. I'd like to point out that if you get at a small enough time scale, it's now. Now, now. The future is now? Now. Yep. The contemporary future? Now. Enter space ball quote here. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Oh. For those for those of you who are listening to this in the in the podcast, the future is here. It is just not evenly distributed. Are we, are we on a podcast? Yeah. yeah. Have we been doing podcasts for oh, all yeah. the yes. <laughs> yes. What the hell? Oh, yeah. Wow. So that, that I've time been swearing my head off and like talking crap yeah, you for have. three days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that and that time when you took your pants off? Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. On the internet. Yep. Right. Fernando I, I, I Mello is people. going to be listening to this, and he's going to sh- he's going to shame you later in the office. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Well, thank you everyone for listening Especially to this. Thank you to Chris Bain. Chris <laughs> Bain. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, next. And that brings us to the end of this episode's Bioware-based panel coverage. We hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you so much. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, at NerdAppropriate, or Facebook, slash NerdAppropriate. Email us directly. That is Matt, Hillary with one L, Scott or Ash at NerdAppropriate.com. And we have uh, over 100 episodes to check out. So definitely subscribe and let us know what you think. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.